Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Donna Stevens. Donna Stevens was a travelling minstrel who wrote a song of celebration for Emperor Ferdinand and visited his court in 1627 to perform said song, to Ferdinand's delight, of course. This is in fact not true, it's all a lie. If you would like me to lie about you though, then head on over to Patreon. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 37 of the Thirty Years' War. Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons, all to the Thirty Years' War. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you're doing well and that you're enjoying our story that we've been following for a really, really long time. Last time, we saw Wallenstein and Tilly mop up the last vestiges of resistance from the Danes. This forced the King of Denmark to hunker down in his Danish islands. And this necessity, coupled with the wider ambitions of the Spanish and Austrian courts fanned the flames of the so-called Baltic design idea. This idea stipulated that if the Habsburgs could extend their power into the Baltic, they'd be able to defeat the Dutch, the Danes, the Swedes, and anyone else who tried to oppose them. They would also be invigorated by controlling the Baltic trade. Such a task would not be easy, though. Wallenstein would have to rely not just on the capabilities of his military engineers, but even more on the pre-existing Baltic cities, which had once populated the Hanseatic League. Unfortunately for Wallenstein, not all these cities were willing to support the venture, and in this episode we're introduced to the most famous of these resilient cities, that of Stralsund. And we will also see how it was that the Emperor finally attempted to pay Wallenstein back, by appropriating more land to him and granting him yet another dukedom. All that is to come, my wonderful history friends, so without any further ado, I'll now take you to early 1628. I can say of this lord that his mind is agile, active and far from tranquil, that he yearns for many things that he does not reveal outwardly. He will certainly be merciless, without brotherly or marital affection, respecting nobody, dedicated completely to himself and his own ambition. He will endeavour to attain many dignities and vast power and thus he will attract many great and secret enemies, most of whom he will defeat. It appears that he will have a special charm for many people, and that he might become the head of a company of conspirators. 
This was the horoscope which the famed astronomer Johann Kepler gave for Albrecht of Wallenstein in 1608. In many respects, it's typical of the vague and reaching predictions of the time, but it's nonetheless a striking indictment of Wallenstein's character, which by 1628 was becoming part of the common conversation of Europe. Wallenstein, now cast as the Duke of Friedland, had been phenomenally successful and he'd managed to destroy virtually all vestiges of resistance to the Habsburgs in northern Germany. Over the winter of 1627-28, his enormous army, in excess of 100,000 men, had been quartered in the mostly unspoiled lands of the Danish king's Jutland Peninsula. If 1627 had been a year of mopping up the last gasps of King Christian IV's resistance, then 1628 would have to be the year that this Habsburg victory was convincingly confirmed. The Emperor's prestige was not the only factor at stake in this. By 1628, Wallenstein had exhausted nearly all lines of credit, and the exorbitant costs of maintaining such a massive army had the potential to actually bankrupt him. The danger to the Empire and to Wallenstein himself, which would follow if these 100,000 unpaid men went on a rampage, was part of the reason why the Emperor continued to ignore all protests about the army's size or the Generalissimo's ambitions. One figure who observed these ambitions with great fear was the Marquis of Aetona, the Spanish ambassador to Vienna. On the 12th of February 1628, Aetona wrote to King Philip IV on Wallenstein's character, on his fortune and the danger he posed in a communique which has since become immensely quotable. Aetona wrote, The Emperor has taken Mecklenburg from the last descendants of the old princely house that had joined the King of Denmark and given it to the Duke of Friedland, Wallenstein. Although Wallenstein maintains that peace is within his grasp, I suspect that this gift will push it further away. The Duke is very powerful. One must be thankful that he is satisfied with these possessions that are admittedly extensive and significant. The Emperor, through his generosity and by ignoring all warnings, has made the Duke so powerful that doubts must arise. He is now the only commander, leaving the Emperor with little more than his title. Wallenstein constantly presents himself as the most loyal servant of the Imperial family, and indeed is such, but only as long as they do not disturb his current absolute power. At the slightest objection to his plan, there will be no safety from him, because his nature is so terrible and moody that he often does not know how to control himself. We can discern several striking aspects of this communique, even before considering the remarks on Wallenstein's character. The first is the confirmation by the Spanish ambassador of what had been long-standing rumours up to that point, that in order to pay Wallenstein's debts, the emperor had determined to transfer a new dukedom to him, this one being Mecklenburg, whose dukes had fought on the side of the Danish king. The second thing that is confirmed is the strange way which Aetona framed this transfer, referring as he does to the generosity of the decision. Mecklenburg, in spite of what Ferdinand would claim, was not his to transfer to anyone he liked in such an arbitrary manner. The act was a significant step up from the emperor's previous practices of transferring land to pay his debts, and it was far from certain that all would be approving of the act. Finally, Aetona's note that Wallenstein was the sole commander underlined the fact that Wallenstein's rank now outstripped that of Count Tilly, who commanded the Catholic League's forces. 
this was a deliberate promotion by the Emperor to reduce his dependence upon either the Catholic League or upon Maximilian of Bavaria, who was the primary funder of that league. Predictably enough, Maximilian of Bavaria did not appreciate being sidelined, and while he had once approved of Wallenstein's appointment, from late 1627 he began to add his voice to the growing number of voices calling for Wallenstein's dismissal. One letter sent by the Emperor to Wallenstein in late February 1628 underlines the immediacy of the confiscations of rebel property across the Empire and the major motive for doing so, that motive being the desperate want of hard currency which Ferdinand needed to pay off his debts. The Emperor wrote, We have graciously resolved and decided that all those confiscations and punishments incurred by the participants of the recent unrest and rebellion in the Holy Roman Empire who have had their fixed and movable property seized by our deputised commissioners, that these are to be used exclusively to pay the army entrusted to you, and not to be used for any other purpose. In order that this can be put into effect, it is our gracious wish that you assist our commissioners with the confiscations, so that these can be seized, valued and converted into cash. However, those debts and liabilities of the various properties are to be assessed, and those that are found to be justified are to be repaid first, before the rest is used to pay our soldiers in future. Discretion and moderation are to be used to ensure that no one, either from the delinquents or the creditors, feel that they have been dealt with too harshly or have cause for complaint. You know well what to do to secure our grace, and we remain yours with imperial and royal grace, and also good wishes. The Emperor was not partaking in a one-off tactic to satisfy his immediate needs, he was pursuing a policy which had served him well in the past, and which he fully recognised the inherent value of. We will recall that Ferdinand had been transferring the land of rebels and delinquents as soon as it was within his power to do so. We'll recall also that Frederick's upper and lower Palatinate had been parcelled up between the Spanish and Bavarians, with the latter receiving the upper Palatinate against the debts of 10 million Reichstallers that the Emperor owed to that Duke. Ferdinand thus paid off his debts by apportioning land which was not his to give. He had a demonstrated history of doing so, and little choice other than doing so, into the future, if he wished for his allies to remain loyal. Wallenstein's gift of Mecklenburg was certainly not the first instance of this policy, but for several reasons it was by far the most egregious. As Wallenstein's unofficial biographer Jeff Mortimer reminds us though, it is important to place such appropriations in context especially if we're tempted to blame Wallenstein for the transfer. Mortimer wrote, Ferdinand never had enough cash to pay for the crippling costs of the war, and so he turned to property, first his own and then that confiscated from others, which he used initially as security and later as outright payment for his debts. The emperor, not Wallenstein, was the originator of these measures. Ferdinand was prepared from an early stage to manipulate the strict forms of imperial legality in order to override property rights, and Mecklenburg fits into that pattern. That this had indeed become a pattern by 1628 was deeply disconcerting, not just to perennial neutrals like John George of Saxony, but also to the greatest benefactor of the pattern, Maximilian of Bavaria. It is indeed the case that Wallenstein accepted the transfer, and that he had campaigned for it in the past, but Again, it's important to place these actions in context as well. 
Wallenstein was not eager to acquire another duchy for the sake of it, or even just so that he could add another title to his name. He had, as we've seen, crippling debts of his own to pay, since he was effectively carrying the financial burden of the war himself. Even with his noted reputation for paying on time, the lines of credit he possessed on the security of his lands, and the organised system which made him one of the wealthiest men in the empire, Wallenstein quickly discovered, as had King Christian IV of Denmark, that the private fortune was all too easily exhausted by the privations of war, especially when that war required an army in excess of 100,000 men. If you're wondering about his latest acquisition, then it deserves some time to actually examine it. The Duchy of Mecklenburg was strategically important because it was sandwiched between Pomerania in the east and Holstein in the west. It contained several ports because it was looking into the Baltic Sea, and it tapped into the Baltic trade through these ports, the port of Wismar being the most important. Mecklenburg was a lucrative duchy then, with great potential, especially for a man like Wallenstein, who was caught up with the scheme of developing a fleet for the Habsburgs in the Baltic. The port of Wismar provided an ideal opportunity for this, and by deposing the rebellious Dukes of Mecklenburg, Wallenstein would also be given an ideal opportunity to squeeze these new lands to pay his considerable debts. Furthermore, his swollen portfolio of land would enable him to take out brand new loans on the security of his new land holdings. These practical considerations were of far greater importance to Wallenstein than the personal ambition of acquiring another duchy or adding to his titles. And it was just as well that Mecklenburg was available to pay off Wallenstein's creditors and help him raise new funds because there was much work still to be done. To achieve this Baltic design which the Spanish and Austrians hankered after, it would be necessary to establish some kind of dominion over the Baltic states that surrounded the seas. Mecklenburg was an important step in this direction, but another was the Duchy of Pomerania, which bordered Mecklenburg to the east. If Mecklenburg was an important prize, Pomerania and the loyalty of its duke, Bogoslav XIV, were essential. Pomerania straddled the Baltic Sea and contained several important ports, one of which was Stralsund. In many respects, the status of Stralsund as the supposed turning point in the Thirty Years' War is overstated. Militarily, Wallenstein's failure to take this stubborn city, spoiler alert, had little impact on his position. Politically, though, it enabled more enemies to come out of the woodwork in Vienna, and before long, Wallenstein would be sacrificed by his emperor for the sake of political and hereditary interests. Before we address that portion of the famous tale, though, we must first examine the campaigning season of 1628 and discern where Stralsund fit into it. As he had done before, Wallenstein spent the winter in his Prague residence. With Christian IV of Denmark stuck on his islands, there was a great deal less urgency in the campaigning season of 1628 than there had been before. The bulk of Wallenstein's army occupied the Jutland Peninsula, and the next step appeared to be the invasion and siege of Copenhagen, for which Wallenstein needed a fleet. With this in mind, Mecklenburg became a convenient base for launching such naval operations, and a fleet of 24 ships was under construction. By now, virtually all of northern Germany was open to the quartering of Wallenstein's soldiers. The only way to escape this undesirable situation was to pay the commanders off. In some cases, these 
Payments, known as contributions, were preferable to actually billeting soldiers, since hard cash was what was needed. Thus, when approaching the Duke of Pomerania in November 1627, Wallenstein had negotiated for the provision of foodstuffs to the portion of his army quartered there on organised intervals. As Duke Bogoslav understood, the alternative to providing these contributions was that Wallenstein's soldiers would ravage his duchy looking for food if it wasn't provided to them. It was therefore preferable to the Duke to arrange for a settlement which would keep everyone happy and protect the integrity of his lands, though of course human nature meant that some privations did occur. Facing no rivals or real enemies, it was also inevitable that Wallenstein's soldiers would become bored and idle if they weren't given anything to do. When boredom struck, regimented training would only go so far, and if the contributions system broke down for whatever reason, there was little that Wallenstein or Tilly could really do to prevent their subordinates leading the charge against the untapped wealth of certain regions. These consequences aside, Wallenstein was preparing for a campaign which would finish off the Danish king and potentially bring the Swedish monarch also to the negotiating table. A landing at Copenhagen would send a clear message to King Gustavus Adolphus, one which the Swedish king had already learned of thanks to Wallenstein's interference in his Polish war. The Baltic design would grow and expire based on the wins and ambitions of the two perspectives in Vienna and Madrid. In Spain, the Spanish minister, Count Olivares, made any Spanish support of Habsburg Baltic adventures contingent on the emperor issuing the imperial ban against the Dutch, which would, in time, enmesh the Holy Roman Emperor in that wretched 80 years war. It should go without saying that Emperor Ferdinand wanted to avoid conflict with the Dutch at all costs, but he would not refrain from stringing Spain along. First, he reminded Madrid that the Spanish had ceased their subsidies to Vienna since 1621, a message which was heard loud and clear because by February 1628, the guts of two and a half million florins were delivered to the emperor's court. Second, the emperor insisted that Mecklenburg and Pomerania provided sufficient bases for the Baltic design, and he named Wallenstein the Captain General of the Oceanic and Baltic Seas, a catchy title, in spring 1628. King Philip IV of Spain could not force the emperor to make war on the Dutch, but he could make it known that Ferdinand was expected to join him in the conflict at some point. Certainly, with Wallenstein close to eliminating the Danish king from the race, it's understandable why the Spanish were so anxious to see Wallenstein turn these men against the Dutch Republic. A force of 100,000 men could easily cause the collapse of Dutch resistance across the board. If this was coupled with the aforementioned Baltic design and the pooling of ships from Poland, the Hanseatic League and Spain... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Then the entirety of the enemies of the Habsburg dynasty would be extinguished. The two prongs of this dream would flounder for different reasons. The emperor would never have been able to wrest approval from the princes of the empire, and certainly not Wallenstein himself, to declare war on the Dutch. Furthermore, the defeat of the Danes did not entail the dissolution of Wallenstein's massive army, because the emperor had another plan for this army. He wanted to use it to impose upon the people of the empire the terms of the religious settlement that he had in mind. What religious settlement did he have in mind? Well, we'll get to that in due course. We're going to continue this story shortly, history friends, by looking at the Duke of Pomerania and how he was getting on with things. But before we do that, I want to remind you of something that's quite important if you're a fan of this podcast and the content I put out. You should know that concurrently to this show, there's another show running called Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which examines the history of Poland in the 18th century. We're currently up to just past the beginning of the War of the Austrian Succession. So in other words, the 1740s. And it's really been a fascinating story. I've really enjoyed exploring this period of history that really our general narrative has never come close to examining before. Now, don't get me wrong, I fully intend to examine this in the future. Perhaps if the Patreon funding ever gets high enough for me to justify a History of Prussia podcast, which I would very much love to do. But you should know that the Poland is Not Yet Lost series is not the only thing that's there. Would you like to know more about the Suez Crisis? There's a series on that too. Or how about the aftermath of Stalin's death in the Soviet Union and how the Soviets grappled with that? That's there as well. There's also some one-off episodes that I'm sure you'll find very interesting. In short, with more than 30 hours of content to digest yourselves, there's never been a better time to sign up for a fiver a month or sign up all in one go for the year and feast your ears upon what we have to offer there. Patreon is the best way to monetarily support this show. And believe me when I say, in the very near future, there'll be even more reasons to join up. I know I've been dropping many hints over the last few months about exactly what I have planned, but I would like to tentatively make the prediction that before the end of July, more will be revealed. If it wasn't obvious before, let me just say I am so excited for what's to come, not just in the future of when diplomacy fails, but in the future of Zach Twomley's career as well. Honestly, if you weren't aware, and I don't know how you're not aware because I've mentioned it so many times, but doing a PhD at the same time as doing the podcast has been a hard balancing act, but it would be pretty much impossible for me to do the PhD at all if I didn't have you guys supporting me through it. So thank you so much for that. And really, being Dr. Zach Twomley really is going to be an incredible testament to just how far, not just I have come, but how far you can use a podcast to bring yourself. Like, it's really amazing. I'm going to be 30 in October as well, so let's just say my age is kind of on my mind at the moment, and it's really amazing that in the 10 years since starting, it'll be 10 years in May 2022, in the 10 years since starting, I've just really 
become a person that gets to do exactly what they want and gets to live their dream. And that's all thanks to you. So, yeah, you're great. And if all you do is listen to this show and nothing else, then you're still great. I just want you to know that. There's no pressure at all to do any of the monetary things or any of the support things. But hey, if you want to drop a review, head on over to Apple Podcasts and drop one there. Because I do read them all and I do enjoy getting all that praise. Give me compliments. You know you want to. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Returning to the Duke of Pomerania and his situation at his capital in Stetten, Duke Bogoslav XIV of Pomerania was far from being in a position to offer much resistance himself. The Duke was sandwiched between two masters, the King of Poland on the one hand, and to a lesser extent, the Elector of Brandenburg. With the arrival of Wallenstein's army, Duke Bogoslav of Pomerania endeavoured to keep the Generalissimo away from the heartland of his duchy, first by promising ready subsidies and supplies, and then by recommending that he billet his soldiers at Stralsund instead. The suggestion of Stralsund would kill two birds with one stone for the Duke. First, it would mean that Wallenstein would not need Stetten, in other words, the Duke's capital for his Baltic design, and he would hopefully leave Stetten alone. Secondly, it would put some manners on the recalcitrant residents of Stralsund, who had a history of resisting the demands of the Duke of Pomerania. So, Wallenstein sent his second-in-command, the eminently capable Hans-Georg von Arnhem, a native of Brandenburg, to acquire the necessary submissions from Stralsund. From January 1628, imperial interest in this coastal city steadily increased. Initially, the proposed contributions for Wallenstein were set at 80,000 thalers, and Stralsund's city council, constituted mostly of rich merchants, fearful for their livelihoods, paid the first instalment of 30,000 thalers relatively promptly. But that was all that would be paid. An undercurrent of discontent and a spirit of resistance began to enter Stralsund, and it was an undercurrent which Wallenstein doesn't seem to have counted on. Arnhem offered to drop the requirement of garrisoning the port city if its council would pay him a one-off sum of 150,000 thalers, and he took a provocative step towards making his seriousness known. One of the city's outlying islands, that of Danholm, was occupied by Arnhem's troops in early February, and their guns were now turned on the city from several angles. In previous instances, cities had surrendered after enduring fewer inconveniences. I mean, come on, just look at the numbers involved. But Stralsund wasn't like other cities. The city was positioned on a triangular island, and it was separated by several lagoons and marshlands. Its inhabitants had long since recognised the city's potential as an impregnable fortress, and the defences which geography alone had made considerable were themselves heavily fortified. Significantly for Wallenstein, a great portion of defensive works had been erected in the spring of 1628, and a further ill omen was the author of these fortifications. Because after the city had determined to resist, Arnhem's forces were expelled from that island of Danholm in the mouth of the city's harbour, and Arnhem's army of 8,000 men faced an unexpected crisis. By the end of April 1628, Stralsund had invited foreign detachments into their city, and Swedish engineers helped to make the aforementioned improvements to the defences. It was kind of like a a way of getting Wallenstein back. He had supported the Poles against their war with the Swedes, so here was the Swedish king supporting Stralsund against Wallenstein. 
1,000 mercenaries were added to the 2,500-man militia, and another 1,000 Swedish, Danish and Scottish soldiers arrived during May. Arnhem was reinforced by 6,000 soldiers of his own in mid-May, but Stralsund's greatest advantage was its free access to the sea, which the Habsburgs were unable to impede at this point. In spite of the great plans to establish a fleet in the Emperor's name, Wallenstein hadn't been able to make one materialise by this point. Thus, reinforcements and fresh provisions arrived throughout these months, which kept Stralsund in good spirits. Danish and even Swedish ships cooperated together to patrol the harbour, in line with their agreement to defend the city in unison, an agreement which had been made in April. Meanwhile, Arnhem's soldiers suffered as the countryside was stripped bare and disease ripped through their ranks. Wallenstein then made the decision to intervene in the siege personally and wrote to the Duke of Pomerania on the 17th of June 1628 to the effect that His Roman Imperial Majesty's Field Marshal, Hans-Georg von Arnhem, has reported to us how the inhabitants of Stralsund persist in their obstinacy. Accordingly, we have no choice but to attack them in order to extinguish the fire before it does great harm to the Holy Roman Empire and your grace's land. And since we have arrived in Frankfurt already and have rested two days, we want to set out for Stralsund at once. We hereby report to your grace that the regiments that have marched from the empire across the Elbe, as well as those that were in Upper and Lower Lusatia, have been ordered to proceed to Stralsund immediately. In order to preserve better discipline and prevent the complete ruin of the country, we amicably request that your grace makes arrangements to provide the troops with the necessary sustenance. And since our artillery is currently in Holstein, far from Stralsund, and it would take a long time to arrive, during which the country would be burdened with the war, we accordingly request equally amicably that your grace provide whatever cannon, ammunition and entrenching tools the said Field Marshal Arnhem requests. We hope to bring the inhabitants of Stralsund to due obedience in short time and save your grace's lands from ruin. You will be doing his Imperial Majesty and the Holy Roman Empire a loyal and affectionate service, and we will also be obliged on this occasion. This was a big ask. Wallenstein was essentially asking the Duke of Pomerania to provide the provisions and also the artillery so that Wallenstein could pound his city, that is, the Duke of Pomerania's city, into submission. Whatever results Wallenstein had hoped for, the help was insufficient to make much of a difference. On the 20th of June 1628, Sweden's most significant contribution to the Thirty Years' War yet came in the form of a flotilla of Swedish ships and soldiers. By the 7th of July, though, Wallenstein was in place with 25,000 men. This would be, he hoped, enough to starve out the city and forge a peace. If not, then the city itself would have to be stormed. By this point, the city of Stralsund had already pledged itself to its new Swedish overlords. For the next 187 years, incredibly enough, Stralsund would serve as a Swedish base in Pomerania, but the needs of the city were too urgent in 1628 for its city fathers to worry too much about what their long-term future would hold. After associating themselves with the Habsburg enemies, they would be liable for harsh treatment unless a suitable deal was made. Before this deal was made, Wallenstein would try and seize the city by force first. Stralsund came under the full attention and fury of the Duke of Friedland, but even with his swollen numbers, he couldn't force a surrender. The city was simply too well defended, especially so long as it maintained a constant supply line through the sea, 
and could depend upon consistent reinforcements from its new Baltic allies. Wallenstein entered negotiations, but the Swedish officers in place among Stralsund's garrison whipped the defenders into a frenzy and prevented its inhabitants from accepting any compromise. On the 31st of July 1628, realising he was getting nowhere and wasting time and resources, Wallenstein broke off the siege. According to one account, Wallenstein genuinely believed the assurances of the Duke of Pomerania, who told him that he would bring Stralsund to heal himself, and that Wallenstein need not worry. To avoid the inevitable bloodbath which would follow, he thus broke off the siege. According to another version, though, this was merely a face-saving excuse, which Wallenstein later gave for his failure. Either way, though, by the first week of August 1628, Stralsund was freed from the noose which had threatened it for so long. It stood as the defiant symbol of resistance against the Habsburg tyranny, the exception to the rule of logical, continuous Habsburg progress, a crushing defeat of which a great deal could be made. The Czech, as the historian Wedgwood wrote, was more effective morally than physically. Yet, this moral victory was tremendously important because it demonstrated that Wallenstein was not invincible and that even with his gargantuan army, he was still vulnerable in certain situations. Or, as the anti-Hausberg pamphleteers gleefully noted, eagles cannot swim. As Wallenstein himself recognised, though, the withdrawal was significant not only because it was a setback in the long-term plan for Baltic domination by a Habsburg fleet, it was significant also because of the identity of the new overlords of Stralsund. For so long, Wallenstein had worked to keep the King of Sweden occupied. During Stralsund, though, Gustavus's soldiers had snuck into the city and in the process granted their king his first German base. It remained to be seen, as he was still knee-deep in a war with Poland, what Gustavus Adolphus would do with this German base. The setback at Stralsund was one which Wallenstein quickly rebounded from. He still held just as much land, and had lost very little actual men and none of his artillery at Stralsund, because as we saw, he didn't actually use his own artillery. His reputation had been somewhat tarnished, and the critics in Vienna began to speak openly about his flaws, but while Wallenstein loathed these developments, he was calm enough to recognise that a stiff victory would turn this talk around, as it had done before. He wouldn't have to wait long. In the first week of September, King Christian foolishly landed at Volgast, along the coast of Wallenstein's new Mecklenburg duchy, with a few thousand men, hoping, it appears, to turn the land against their new lord. The campaign was short-lived and doomed to failure, since Wallenstein still possessed overwhelming numerical superiority. Christian was lucky to escape the encounter, and he fled back to Copenhagen never to threaten Wallenstein again. Shortly after arriving at his capital, the pressures of fickle allies and a hostile nobility, not to mention an empty treasury, became too much for the Danish king, who acquiesced to determined peace negotiations. Thus, the campaigning season of 1628 ended with about as much success as the previous years. The blight of Stralsund aside, Wallenstein had done everything he had set out to do, and with King Christian now welcoming peace overtures, it was likely that he would be permitted to return to his new duchies and begin the process of ruling them soon enough. He still worried about the Swedish king, and not even sending Arnhem to help the king of Poland had been enough to achieve much of a victory. 
Gustavus Adolphus, for his part, had been forced to retreat from his siege of Danzig, a symptom of the back-and-forth nature of the Swedish-Polish war, which had been ongoing for nearly a decade by this stage. But the Swedish army remained intact, and the Polish Commonwealth was unable to press the advantage. The King of Sweden had made great gains in the war with his cousin, but by late 1628, the King of Sweden was over 5 million Reichsthalers in debt. The Polish King, too, was looking for a way out. This stalemate in the Northern War was exactly the outcome Wallenstein had feared. All that was required now was the announcement of peace talks, and then a treaty, and he would be forced to fight against another northern power which would surely receive foreign help. The reality was worse than Wallenstein in fact imagined. Gustavus was well aware of the implications of his looming peace treaty. Ever since the Thirty Years' War had begun and Frederick V had become an exile, he had kept his eyes on Germany while he battled his Polish foe. If intervention in Germany appealed to the Swedish king's ambitions and sense of adventure, then within the year it was also to appeal to his religious duty. Much to Wallenstein's dismay, his master the emperor was soon to cast a great sectarian shadow over the German conflict. Just as the Danish foe was buckling, Emperor Ferdinand took a final step towards the logical conclusion which he had been for so long working towards, the realisation of the Counter-Reformation, bound up in the Edict of Restitution. For the Habsburg dynasty, the emperor and his generalissimo, it would prove a step too far. In the next episode, we'll examine how Wallenstein wrapped up this Danish war at long last, how other powers got involved, and what these developments meant for Ferdinand's grand plan of religious correction in the empire. The Edict of Restitution, the fruits of all of Ferdinand's victories, loomed as a long shadow over the desperate pleas from Wallenstein for a lasting peace. The newly enfranchised duke wanted to go home and enjoy what remained of his healthy years on earth, but the emperor had other plans. I hope you join me for that, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach. This has been episode 37 of the 30 Years' War. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 